Today on Against the Grain. In the aftermath of World War II, as the United States consolidated its position as a global superpower, it was confronted with significant challenges from below and shifting political terrain, anti-colonial struggles around the world, and civil rights struggles domestically. To handle both, the U.S. state turned to the police, who were sent overseas to assist in counterinsurgency and brought back to quell domestic unrest. And, as Stuart Schrader argues, the link between foreign counterinsurgency and domestic repression casts a long shadow over the present. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. For decades, the United States exported American police to train foreign cops and how to limit the spread of communism. And as scholar Stuart Schrader shows, the lessons from American police support of counterinsurgency abroad directly shaped the repression of civil rights and anti-war protests domestically. In his book, Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing, Schrader looks at the history and afterlife of the Office of Public Safety, which was shut down under pressure in the mid-1970s, but which operated in 52 countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Schrader is Associate Director of the Program in Racism, Immigration, and Citizenship at Johns Hopkins University. Stuart, how did the U.S. state link global counterinsurgency to the issue of racial unrest domestically in the very earliest days of the Cold War? The question of civil rights struggle was prominent in the minds of leaders at the State Department, the CIA, um, and, and other figures in the national security establishment from the earliest days after World War II. Um, and the reason is, is quite simply that there were struggles for decolonization and independence um, already emerging across the globe. And these leaders worried that the newly independent countries emerging from colonialism, you know, the, the French Empire and the British Empire were uh, collapsing in some ways already as soon as the war was over. And there was a worry that these these newly independent countries would find common cause with the Soviet Union. So the United States worried about this, uh, worried about the Soviets expanding their sphere of influence. Um, this, of course, comes to be understood under, under the terms of, of the domino theory, in essence. And in the United States, of course, there were ongoing civil rights struggles. And many of the leaders of, of these efforts, going back decades already, uh, spoke in terms of solidarity with the people around the globe who were um, you know, emerging from from the kind of shackles of colonialism, in, in particularly in Asia and Africa. So, so U.S. security national security officials who were looking overseas recognized that there might be um, solidarity and alliance built among particularly African Americans in the United States who were themselves engaging in a sort of independent struggle in a. In, a, in an effort to find um, new political, social, and, and economic freedom and, and new rights. So, so the United States um, uh, national security establishment, I found in my research, was, was actually quite conscious of the possibilities of these linkages across borders, which I think subsequently many scholars have, have paid close attention to. And, and and found to be quite uh, 
you know, important for understanding the civil rights movement in a kind of global context. And, and what I found in, in my research is that, you know, the national security state was, was aware of this and found it to be um, threatening and, and, and even potentially dangerous. Tell us who Byron Engel was and the importance of his experience in U.S.-occupied Japan after World War II. Byron Engel was a cop from Kansas City. He joined the police force in Kansas City at the end of the 1930s when a deeply corrupt uh, political machine came to its end and a new police chief was installed who, whose, whose mission was to reform and reestablish the, the Kansas City Police Department as a more kind of independent and less corrupt police force. So Byron Engel was hired at that time, and for whatever reason, he seemed to be something of a, a prodigy when it came to particularly police training. And of course, police training was essential to police reform as it was understood at the time because it was really about training away the old bad habits of, of the corrupt police force and instilling new, less corrupt habits. So Engel was a trainer. Um, one of his specialties was riot control training. And he quickly moved up through the ranks in uh, Kansas City. He went to the FBI National Academy. So he kind of learned the lessons of, of J. Edgar Hoover early on. And he stayed in Kansas City through World War II, whereas many police officers around the country enlisted in, and joined the military and went off to war. Um, but he, he did not. He stayed home. But then when the war ended, he was already prominent enough across the, the Midwest that some quite powerful leaders in the profession of policing knew who he was. And the United States occupied uh, Japan and occupied Germany some other places at the end of the war. And a big piece of the occupation was kind of what, 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 what the authorities considered, you know, reestablishing the rule of law, reestablishing, you know, law and order, but on a, you know, non-authoritarian um, model. Really, the idea was that the police in Germany, the police in Japan were these instruments of, of authoritarian dictatorships. And, and the United States thought, well, of course, there needs to be a police force. And particularly, there needs to be a police force to control the risk of either the kind of remnants of the old regime from kind of coming back or uh, communist forces, labor unions and, 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 and other left wing radicals from you know, gaining ground in these places. So they try to reestablish police forces, but they try to design them on a more U.S. style model. And so Byron Engel was the figure because of his prominence, sent to Japan um, to develop some new new training and, and techniques for police in Japan. And he stayed there for, for several years doing this work. And there, there were a number of other figures who, uh, who were also themselves policemen from the United States who worked with him in Japan on, on this, this um, police reform effort. And many of them remained colleagues and continued to do this type of work in the ensuing decades, which is uh, the, the, the period I cover in, in the book, Badges Without Borders. So how was the Office of Public Safety established and what was its predecessor? Well, Byron Engel became the director of the Office of Public Safety. The Office of Public Safety was created um, around 1962, so during the Kennedy administration, but from the end of, of World War II when Engel went to Japan all the way until that, that period, so throughout the presidencies of, of Truman and Eisenhower, Engel was, was doing this type of work. So after he did this work in Japan, he then went to Turkey. I think he returned to Japan at another point, and eventually he started traveling around the globe to a number of different countries. And in, and in each of these countries, he and his, his colleagues worked on training, um, re-equipping, re retraining, re-equipping police, and trying to, uh, what they would have called, modernize their, their capabilities to bring their um, 
technical and technological capabilities up to standards that would have been the common standards in the United States at the time. And again, the whole point really that at the very root of this, the whole point was to uh, prevent the further expansion of the communist sphere of influence. Again, going back to the, the, the domino theory, the idea that if one country uh, has a communist revolution, then the worry would be that the, the neighbor, neighboring countries would then themselves also experience uh, a communist revolution in a kind of inexorable sequence. The Office of Public Safety and, the, and its, its, its kind of less formalized uh, predecessors wanted to develop strong, reliable, capable police forces that would be able to keep not just tabs on, but also really keep control over the uh, potential left-wing movements in as many countries as possible. And so when the Office of Public Safety comes into existence in the 60s, um, it's, offering, it's already offering um, this police assistance to dozens of countries. And throughout the, the, the period of its existence, it ultimately closes down in 1974-1975. It offers police assistance, meaning it sends advisors to be on the ground in other countries um, to, to 52 of them around the globe. 52 countries receive the assistance of the Office of Public Safety. And it also establishes a police training academy. It was called the International Police Academy. It was in the Georgetown neighborhood of Washington, D.C. And that operated until, again, from around 62 to around 75. And, and 77 countries sent their police, usually quite high-ranking police, to be trained in the United States. And, and that was, again, also run by the Office of Public Safety. Well, I'd like to ask you more about the Office of Public Safety and the sort of work that it did in all of these countries around the world. But I wonder if you could first describe for us how people in the U.S. state saw the adequacy or an inadequacy of the Cold War attempts to stop the spread of communism, as it was framed, by military involvement by the CIA. How was policing seen within the spectrum of options for counterinsurgency, and how was it seen in terms of its effectiveness? Yeah, this is a really important question and one that I delve into at some length in the book because, of course, the term counterinsurgency is uh, somewhat contested even to this day, what it, what it means and what, what does counterinsurgency consist of um, remains a kind of hot topic and, and perhaps, you know, it will become a less hot topic now that the occupation of Afghanistan and the occupation of Iraq are are, are in the past, um, hopefully. But the, the, the term really gets invented in the late 1950s and then taken up by the Kennedy administration. Both Robert F. Kennedy and uh, John F. Kennedy are adherents of, of the idea of counterinsurgency. But what does that mean is, is a question that is debated within um, military and intelligence circles. Now, Byron Engel and, and, and other police advisors have been already engaged in an effort throughout the 1950s to prevent communist subversion as they see it, um, and of course the communist revolution in a number of countries. They're trying to get the police to be a, a, a really a capable instrument of of preventing this type of activity. Now, they probably would not have used the term counterinsurgency uh, to describe that until the Kennedy administration comes into existence. They would have used some other terms. But at the same time, there are figures in the intelligence establishment um, all the way up to, to the Dulles brothers who for a time are running the State Department and the CIA, and they have a belief that the best way to um, constrain or restrain the spread of communism across the globe is to actually overthrow governments that have uh, left leanings. And, and the model 
for, for this type of operation is in Iran and in Guatemala, where where the the, the CIA and, and with allies, you know, they, they collaborate to overthrow the government. In in both Iran and Guatemala, after the these regimes are overthrown with CIA uh, resources and assistance, Byron Engel's crew of police advisors comes in to sort of maintain the the the, the peace and suppress any potential revolutionary uh, movements that break out. But with the Bay of Pigs, disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion early in the Kennedy administration, those figures who have this idea of a kind of active uh, rollback of the growth of, of, of communist or, or socialist governments, um, they, they lose favor. Obviously, the Kennedy administration is, is humiliated by the the Bay of Pigs invasion, which which you know d does not work at all in Cuba, to 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 overthrow the the Fidel Castro regime, so that creates a kind of opening or opportunity for police assistance for the the kind of group of of security experts around Byron Engel to emerge somewhat unscathed. They have not been arguing for overthrowing unfriendly regimes. They're 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 trying to prevent the possibility of the overthrow of friendly regimes. So this allows them to to kind of remain untouched and, and emerge without any um, any of the taint that some of these other intelligence figures have. And that I think allows police assistance to to emerge as the the most kind of well tested and resilient uh, form of, of uh, counterinsurgency thinking at that time. In essence, they argue counterinsurgency means preventing insurgency from breaking out in the first place, and police are the best instrument to do that. Now, of course, in many countries, the United States helps militaries and, and paramilitary forces do this, but in, in my book, I'm focused on, on the, the, the police and the Office of Public Safety's assistance to police. And that book in question is Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing. And I'm speaking with its author, Stuart Schrader. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So I wonder if you could talk about and give us some examples of those counterinsurgency through policing efforts in Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, that the Office of Public Safety was engaged in, and the role of the surveillance of the left in those operations? I think one piece that is really crucial to understand is that the Office of Public Safety did not imagine that police in these countries needed to have some extremely sophisticated set of techniques for combating communist subversion. In fact, the belief was really that everyday mundane forms of policing would be crucial. And what I mean by this is to say that they would teach police in other countries how to engage in basic types of surveillance and um, gathering of, of information, how to conduct basic searches, whether it would be a search of somebody, you know, at a border crossing, the way that, that any kind of, you know, customs agency would engage in to see what types of materials somebody is bringing with them across a border, or stopping somebody on the side of the road to, you know, search their car, search their trunk for, for contraband. These types of basic uh, policing techniques that would have been completely recognizable on the streets of, of an American you know, town or city, this is basically what they were trying to teach other police forces around the globe to engage in because they believed that basic policing techniques would be the way to ferret out uh, communist subversives and they would they would do the the types of um, you know stakeouts and and um, observations of you know uh, say a, a a labor union that is 
trying to organize outside a, a factory, you know, passing out leaflets or trying to get people to, you know, sign up to be members of a group. The, the Office of Public Safety would encourage police to um, keep track of that and, and, you know, note everybody who's doing it, note their characteristics, perhaps follow them, see where they're going. So those types of, of techniques, which I think um, everybody kind of has a, a, a basic sense, whether it's from, you know, movies or TV, you know, what that looks like, that's what they were doing. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that there weren't also, um, you know, various forms of, of manipulation and provocation and, and more, more kind of secretive, what we would call counterintelligence methods also being taught and used. But on the whole, um, the, the, the foundation was um, basic, basic policing techniques and also introduction of what we would, I think, consider basic policing technologies, you know, ranging from uh, radio equipment so that police in kind of outlying provinces could be in contact with the capital very easily. Tell us about the role of the Office of Public Safety in South Vietnam. Well, South Vietnam was the country that had the largest mission, advisory mission for the Office of Public Safety. It was one of the first uh, that was put into existence really soon after the, the, the peace accords that ended um, the first Indochina War, the, the, the war for independence from France. So that the, the peace accords come about in 1954 and some of the first new people on the ground in South, South Vietnam at that time. Um, and of course, it wasn't supposed to be South Vietnam because the, the partition was meant to be temporary, but it ended up lasting for two decades. Some of the first Americans on the ground were police advisors. They were sent to investigate, okay, what are the capabilities of kind of law enforcement, um, the, 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 the rule of law and, and, and the maintenance of order in, in their understanding that are, that are now going to be uh, operating in the absence of the French colonial power. So they do a survey, they do a study of the, the law enforcement capabilities and resources that are available, and they use that to then make a number of recommendations about how to bolster the law enforcement capabilities. So from 54 to 1963, which is um, in, in the, I think the very beginning of November of 1963, um, the Xi'an regime comes to an end with his assassination just a few weeks before the assassination of Kennedy. In that period, the United States, um, through what, what becomes the Office of Public Safety, but also through Michigan State University, which has a kind of interesting uh, and somewhat complicated role in this, they provide, and that's because Michigan State University had a, a police uh, training college. So they provide a bunch of assistance to the police forces in South Vietnam. And, and I think that there is a kind of argument that has been ongoing among scholars of the, the early period of U.S. involvement of what leads to the, the war in Vietnam is, did this police assistance actually uh, squelch or control what becomes the insurgency? or did it actually lead to the insurgency? And I think my argument would be that in, in many ways, because the police assistance that the United States provided intensified the repressive capabilities of an already repressive regime, um, it then led to greater and greater um, anger and discontent among the population, which fed into people uh, people having a, a, a if not um, fully ideological agreement with the National Liberation Front, um, a sympathy with its argument that that the the regime was illegitimate and needed to be eliminated. So, in that sense, if if the whole idea, going back to our earlier point about counterinsurgency, if the whole idea of police assistance was to prevent insurgency. In fact, the police assistance made it possible for the security forces to be so repressive and so abusive 
that it actually fomented rather than prevented insurgency. And would you say the same would be true or was true in Latin America in terms of the involvement of the Office of Public Safety and its ramifications? Yeah, absolutely. I think that in many cases, and, and in, in Latin America, in Asia, and in Africa, the, the police assistance that the Office of Public Safety provided bolstered the repressive capabilities of regimes that were already not, not very friendly to um, political democracy anyway. So the, the great challenge of counterinsurgency, and of course, you know, the, the U.S. experience over the past couple of decades in Iraq and Afghanistan proves this, that the great challenge of counterinsurgency is always in the minds of, of the, the counterinsurgent, figuring out the distinction between who is an actual active insurgent and who is a passive possible supporter of the insurgency. And what almost inevitably invariably happens when counterinsurgency is enacted is that the, the passive members of the population end up becoming seen as either almost an enemy or actually an enemy. And, and this leads to attacks on arrests of torture of um, unaffiliated you know, civilians, uh, including, of course, women and children, um, sometimes, you know, actual massacres and, and really brutal violence. And this was, of course, the case in many countries in Latin America during the period of the Cold War, all the way up through the 1980s. So the Office of Public Safety, with its um, belief that policing would be the, the best instrument for preventing insurgency, Part of, it, part of the reason for that thinking was because police are closely embedded within regular populations. Of course, the military tends to live in barracks. Um, they're kind of um, uh, enclosed socially. They're, they're their own unit. Whereas police, it's basically a day job. They live in uh, the communities. They go home at night and then they come back to work the next day. They're, they're embedded in these communities. But what that means is that the suspicions that they develop about regular people and their political beliefs or their um, sympathies for um, radical movements end up becoming dispersed quite widely throughout the community. And you oftentimes find that, that the police end up becoming um, suspicious of, you know, their own neighbors, quite literally. And the Office of Public Safety encouraged that by encouraging the sense that the enemy was hidden among everyday people and police were the best instrument for, for ferreting out those, those hidden enemies. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Today, I'm speaking with Stuart Schrader. He teaches at Johns Hopkins, where he's Associate Director of the Program in Racism, Immigration, and Citizenship. We're discussing his book, published by UC Press, Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing. And you can find a link to that book at againstthegrain.org. Well, in the period in which the Office of Public Safety was operating around the world, there was, of course, political unrest inside the United States, including the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. I wonder if you could tell us about another key character in this story, Arnold Sagalin, who, in fact, worked for the Treasury Department. Um, who was he and how did he take the work that was being done abroad by the Office of Public Safety that is giving police support for counterinsurgency abroad, and how through that influenced Lyndon Johnson's war on crime. Arnold Sagalin worked for the Treasury Department in a position coordinating um, law enforcement with within Treasury. Um, I, I think many of us probably would need to be reminded that there are law enforcement agencies within the Treasury Department. The Secret Service is actually housed there. So, the, and there are a number of other 
uh, particularly back in, in the 1960s or another number of other law enforcement agencies there. The Department of Homeland Security has rearranged some of this. But so his job was coordination among them. Coordination also meant training and um, making sure that, that every agency had the same types of um, capacities and capabilities. In this work, of course, because these law enforcement agencies had a, a kind of more than domestic remit, he came into contact with Byron Engel. So Byron Engel was already a, a, an experienced operator by this point. He um, had been affiliated with the CIA and he, for whatever reason, really liked Arnold Sagalin. They, they saw eye to eye and I think also Engel saw something in Sagalin as far as his kind of um, politically liberal credentials that would be quite useful to him. But they forged a friendship and that friendship lasted um, throughout the 1960s. During this period, as you mentioned, there is great political upheaval in the United States. And one of the real markers of that political upheaval came in the summer of 1964, when there was uh, civil unrest, uprisings in a number of cities. Uh, this is right around the time that the Civil Rights Act was signed, one of the key legislative initiatives of the Johnson administration as far as um, trying to overcome some of the you know, deeply embedded racism in this country through, through legislative action. In Harlem, in Rochester, New York, uh, in Philadelphia, and, and in a number of other places, there are widespread protests. Many of these protests come in response to abusive and violent activities by police toward African-Americans. So Arnold Sagalin watches these events with some concern as many law enforcement figures watch them. And there was a debate at the time over whether these were these events were instigated by communists. Even uh, J. Edgar Hoover him, himself, <laughs> who was uh, likely to to blame the communists for many things, uh, and 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 you know, of course, had great kind of paranoia about how African American and civil rights uh, activists might have been influenced by the communists. Even he was skeptical that there was kind of communist choreography or, or, or um, uh, instigation behind these events. Sagalin's response was less to focus on how, uh, you know, who, who politically might have been behind these events, but more on how the police dealt with these types of um, protests and, and ultimately uh, unrest once it, once it broke out. He thought the magnitude of, of this unrest in the summer of 1964 proved that police in the United States were really not up to the task. They were, they were incapable of adequately controlling unrest. And so he wrote a series of analyses for the Johnson administration where he said, look, what these events prove is that we need to upgrade the capabilities of police across the United States. And he recognized that the Johnson administration through the Civil Rights Act, um, through the Economic Opportunity Act, which also is signed that summer, that these, the, these big legislative initiatives um, are not going to be enough to prevent the outbreak of unrest. They're, the effects of them are going to take a long time. And in the meantime, they, there is going to be um, anger and discontent uh, within African-American urban communities. So police need to be ready. They need to be prepared to deal with this. And he says to the Johnson administration, I have an idea for how we can quite quickly fix this problem. We need to just imitate what we're doing overseas with the Office of Public Safety. He says the Office of Public Safety in other countries around the globe is providing riot control training, um, new types of weaponry uh, and armor and so forth to use in riots, and it's quite effective. So we need to do something quite similar in the United States. We need to take the resources 
that Washington, D.C. has and disseminate them across the country to police agencies, disseminate new technologies, disseminate new training. And ultimately, this is what the Johnson administration comes to do. It takes a few years, but by 1968, um, and of course, there's much more severe unrest in intervening years in a number of cities than happened in 64. By 1968, the Johnson administration signs its massive anti-crime legislation, the Omnibus uh, Crime Control and Safe Streets Act. And this bill, one of the main pieces of it is to create a new agency called the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, which provides millions and millions of dollars for law enforcement from Washington that's given all across the United States. It's, it's given to the states and uh, mostly police are the initial recipients of it. Eventually, um, jails and, and prisons and, and also court systems start receiving some of this money as well. And what I argue in, in Badges Without Borders is that the idea of giving police assistance to prevent unrest, um, prevent revolution overseas, which the Office of Public Safety embodied, this idea comes to influence and um, shape the anti-crime efforts that come out of the Johnson administration, which we typically would refer to as the war on crime. Tell us about, uh, you just touched on it briefly, how ideas about riot control came back home, so to speak, and also about certain technologies or configurations that we're very familiar with today in terms of police repression of demonstrations in the United States, and that is uh, tear gas and also the use of SWAT units or special weapons and tactics units. So in the book, I have uh, three chapters that, that focus on, on this topic primarily. One is about riot control training initiatives in the United States. One is about so-called tear gas, and then one is about, as you mentioned, SWAT teams. And, and I show in each case that the Office of Public Safety plays uh, an essential role in rethinking, reframing how U.S. law enforcement operates domestically. So when it comes to training police for uh, what they call riot control, the Office of Public Safety, as I mentioned, is operating its International Police Academy in Washington, D.C., which ultimately trains something like around 9,000 police from around the globe. This training academy, one of its key uh, lessons concerns riot control. And this becomes influential as the Department of Justice, including the FBI, and especially the Department of Defense through the Army, take the initiative to institute new riot control training courses. The Army in 1968 starts offering a whole new curriculum that ultimately becomes open to police, um, National Guard, Army, and, and others from around the country. And this, this training curriculum operates for, for around a decade. And the model for it, in many ways, is not, um, it's not fully indigenous to the Army, even though the Army controls it, um, but actually much of the influence comes from the Office of Public Safety. Similarly, a big piece of the, the kind of training or the, the lesson that this training imparts is to use chemical munitions, basically to use tear gas and the idea there is that in 1964, 1967, you know, these episodes of major civil unrest in the United States, um, police and especially National Guard used their guns uh, during unrest. They essentially fired guns at innocent bystanders, they fired guns at buildings, they fired guns at moving cars. And what that meant was that it oftentimes intensified or worsened the political unrest. And so Byron Engel himself, uh, in, in collaboration with Arnold Saglin, 
makes a recommendation to law enforcement to be much more cautious about using guns in situations of political protest and unrest. In part, he's he, he, he knows that this is a bad idea because he's been traveling around the globe watching how police deal with political protests. And he's seen that quite frequently they fire their guns wantonly into crowds and kill people, and it just worsens and intensifies the unrest. So he says, the United, we shouldn't be doing this in the United States either. We, meaning police, shouldn't be doing this in the United States either. Instead, we should be using what, what he calls... Uh, you know, non-lethal technologies. And of course, we know that tear gas, and particularly the tear gas that he helps to bring online, um, which is a chemical called CS, he knows that, um, or we know that it can be lethal. It, it, it is not, that non-lethal is a, a kind of mis, uh, a mis, misused term. But ultimately, tear gas starts to become much, much, much more commonly used, and particularly CS, uh, after Byron Engel issues these recommendations, after the Office of Public Safety explains its experience with using these technologies overseas to audiences of domestic law enforcement agencies. And, you know, we can take this history all the way up to the present. In the summer of 2020, as, as many of your listeners will know, CS, this, this chemical which causes people to feel like they can't breathe, it's a really nasty chemical. Um, it's, you know, tear gas is a misnomer. It does not just make you, you know, your eyes well up with tears. It, it really takes your breath away. Um, CS was used all over the country um, in, in dozens of different places in the protests after the murder of George Floyd. And, and we, can, we can tie that experience directly back to Byron Engel, to the Office of Public Safety, and to the U.S. war in Vietnam. Stuart Schrader is my guest. He is the author of Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing, which is published by UC Press. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. There was a growing awareness in the context of repression against the left, the anti-war movement, uh, the civil rights movement, that in the 1970s led to Congress ultimately pulling the plug on the Office of Public Safety. But after it was shut down, how did police training for counterinsurgency continue in the private sector? This is an important piece of the history. I think on the one hand, there, there is a forgotten, um, I think, success that the left might um, cautiously celebrate, which is that anti-war and anti-imperialist movements um, helped to make somewhat dramatic changes in the 1970s to U.S. foreign policy. Of course, we know that the, the U.S. war in Vietnam came to an end, um, and, and, and of course, that, that is, I think everybody would agree that it was, it was delayed, but that was an important transformation. Another less well-known transformation is that the Office of Public Safety was shut down. It was shut down because of the concerted efforts of a number of activists who worked with some left-leaning allies in Congress, particularly a senator uh, named James Ab Aberesk from um, South Dakota, and they rewrote, uh, Aberesk and his colleagues in Congress, rewrote the Foreign Assistance Act to preclude the provision of police training and assistance to other countries as the Office of Public Safety had been doing. And the reason was that there was a widespread sense that the Office of Public Safety was instrumental in teaching human rights violations or, or facilitating human rights violations around the globe. Now, uh, people like Byron Engel, um, by, this, by this point, the kind of uh, old guard of the Office of Public Safety was mostly retired. Uh, I think they saw the writing on the wall and they decided to retire so that they wouldn't be affiliated with a kind of ignominious end to the agency. Engel himself, um, you know, goes into retirement and, and is basically uh, becomes a, a, a kind of more conservative political activist. He ends up working on things like gun, gun rights and, and various other 
activities. But some of the other figures who retire with the, the close of the Office of Public Safety, they have a, a brilliant idea, which is from their perspective, which is that Congress has now said that the US government can no longer provide police assistance and training to other countries. But if they do the same type of work under private auspices, essentially if they found their own private security consulting firms, they can keep doing the same types of work. So a number of these figures, when the Office of Public Safety gets shut down by Congress, again, something that I think is worth celebrating, um, but then the celebration should have a caveat, which is that the work continued, the work continued. And so they, they, they basically just changed the sign on their office door. It, you know, it says, you know, U.S. government, and then the next day it says private firm, essentially. In recent years, there's been a fair amount of discussion about the so-called militarization of policing by critics of police brutality. Can you tell us why you find that term, militarization of policing, problematic? When I began working on the research that ultimately led to Badges Without Borders, I thought that I was researching militarization of policing. That was the term that was in my head, and I went into the archives, the National Archives, trying to find uh, how it occurred. And what I thought that meant was that I would look in the records of the U.S. military for how it attempted to influence police. And there are some there is some evidence to be found of, of this occurring, but on the whole, there was not a huge amount of, of evidence. The military actually wasn't all that interested in influencing police. And in fact, the most influential uh, figures and the most influential agency, Byron Engel and the Office of Public Safety, um, they were quite insistent that they were not the military. They were quite insistent that they were doing something different from what the military would do. And in fact, using the military again in counterinsurgency um, was not likely to produce the types of intelligence that um, they felt was necessary to, to develop in order for um, the re repression of the left. Again, that's not to say that militaries did not engage in that type of repression, but in terms of the kind of ideological and technical battle within the, the national security state over who, who should get the most resources, um, the, the Office of Public Safety was, was successful in making this argument that police should train police rather than military should train police. On the other hand, they oftentimes gave police military-style weapons, um, which confounds this, this claim that they were oftentimes making. But ultimately, what I found in my research is that there's almost no point in time in, in the, all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century in the history of policing in the United States where you can't find some influence of military on police. There's always a little bit of blurriness between this, and each side is, is usually saying we're different from the other. They're oftentimes asserting their independence from the other, and nevertheless, there is a blurriness, there is a shared set of ideas, training uh, practices, technologies, and so forth. So militarization, I think, um, as it's contemporarily, militarization of policing as it's used in the contemporary moment, implies that there is a, a really dramatic shift that has recently occurred Previously, there was a, a rigid boundary between military and police. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm just not sure that was actually the case, even though, as I said, these, these actors, these historical actors that I look at, they try to assert that there is a boundary, and then they just blur it anyway. Stuart, let me end by asking you about what your research and the argument that you make in your book, how that might inform activism now. You make the argument that we cannot separate domestic policing in the United States from U.S. foreign policy and policing for counterinsurgency around the globe. So given that argument, is it enough for us to focus here on mass incarceration and policing in the U.S.? I don't want to imply that um, a domestic focus uh, is 
is wrong. Um, obviously, there are limitations to everybody's uh, you know, capacities in terms of their activism. But I do want to suggest that it's a mistake to imagine that any uh, police agency, any police technology, and similarly, any uh, you know, incarceration technology or, or expertise, that any of these is itself a purely domestic phenomenon. The United States for decades and decades has uh, tried to circulate its technologies and its expertise around the globe. Police have been an, an essential instrument of US foreign policy, and they remain so all the way up until the present. So my suggestion would be that if we, we meaning activists are trying to um, restrain police power, um, to try to uh, eliminate mass incarceration, we have to understand that these projects, these agencies are, are always thinking of themselves and trying to implement their practices on a more than domestic scale. Um, if we were to find a way to constrain police power, you know, of course, the defund the police movement is explicitly trying to constrain police power. Um, the only way to understand the full scope of that power that we're trying to constrain is to look at it in its full geographic extent, which is, I would argue, um, far more than domestic and in fact covers almost the entire globe. Stuart Schrader, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Stuart Schrader teaches at Johns Hopkins, where he's Associate Director of the Program in Racism, Immigration, and Citizenship. His book is Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing. That's published by UC Press, and you can find a link to it on our website, againstthegrain.org. And you have been, of course, listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Radio Against.